You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. For today's episode, we've teamed up with the Canadian Museum of Nature in Ottawa in conjunction with their new exhibit, Brain, The Inside Story, to discuss women's mental health. You can experience Brain, The Inside Story for yourself by visiting the Canadian Museum of Nature anytime before September 3rd of this year, 2018. Our guest on this podcast today, Dr. Jillian Einstein, will be giving a talk at the Museum of Nature entitled Estrogen and the Brain on Thursday, August 16th. So if you want to do a deeper dive into the topics we're discussing on the show today, we have included information in the show notes and on our website about how you can reserve your free spot to attend the talk. Why don't we get started? Why don't you uh, tell us your name and your affiliation? Jillian Einstein. I'm the Wilfred and Joyce Poslins Chair of Women's Brain Health and Aging uh, in the Department of Psychology at the University of Toronto. And I'm also a guest professor of gender and health at Linköping University in Linköping, Sweden. Oh, wow. Okay. So I understand that you do um, medically related work that involves sex and gender issues. Can you explain for our audience, uh, for the people who might not know, what is the difference between sex and gender? Sex is the biological features of of a person, whether they have two X chromosomes, whether they have an um, X and a Y chromosome, or some variation on that. Um, It's the relative uh, ratios of the hormones that they make, and it includes uh, what they look like, their phenotype, um, secondary sex characteristics. Uh, So it's thought to be a primarily biological category, whereas gender is uh, a social category. It's how you perceive yourself uh, and and your identity as a, a man or a woman or along that spectrum. It's about how you're treated by society. It's about there's an institutional form of gender, uh, the fact that women are often paid less uh, for the jobs, the equivalent jobs to what to men's jobs, that's gender. Um, so there's institutional gender, um, and then there are gender relations, the interactions between people that uh, have to do with, uh, in some sense, the perception of a person's sex, but their social attitudes. Do you study something that's called premenstrual dysphoric disorder? I don't study premenstrual dysphoric disorder. I did do a series of papers with uh, my colleague Sarah Roman on um, premenstrual syndrome, or okay. PMS. And sometimes people like to conflate the two and say that, well, PMS is just a lesser form of premenstrual dysphoric disorder. But I think of premenstrual dysphoric disorder as an extremely rare a uh, disorder uh, tightly linked with the menstrual cycle. Um, it's in between 1% to 10% of women. Okay. So I know PMS is a term that gets tossed around all the time by non-medical professionals. Um, what uh, What is PMS and, and what are some, you know, misconceptions about it that a lot of people have? PMS is, def- you know, kind of defined as negative mood basically just prior to menstruation. It's really living very strongly in what we might call the popular imagination that, you know, some people say over 80% of women have PMS. I guess my perspective on PMS is that, well, first of all, I think it's done women a great service because before the notion of PMS, it's like 
you couldn't even talk about having your period. I'm old enough to remember that you hid your tampax. You know, you never let people know that you that that you might be menstruating on a given day. You certainly didn't mention it. And you know, now people say very freely, "Oh, I'm PMSing today." You know, it's a a category that to explain mood. But in fact, when we've studied PMS, we've actually in in healthy women who are not going to the clinic complaining of premenstrual syndromes, we find that there's absolutely no correlation between negative mood and their menstrual cycle phase. Really? And, yeah. And when we um, when we actually try to correlate hormones, uh, hormone levels with um, negative mood and positive mood. Uh, we see no correlation between estrogens or progesterones and negative mood or positive mood for that matter. And what seems to be more tightly correlated are social factors like a person's perception of their um, health and a person's perception of whether they're stressed or not. So it sounds like people think PMS exists or they think that it's biologically uh, caused, that there are mood changes that are biologically caused. Um, and you're, you have found no correlation with right. menstrual cycles. So um, is it just a case of um, the availability or like confirmation bias going on that people, you know, they notice it when it confirms their ideas of how the body works? I think I would partially agree with what you're saying. I think that's an interesting inference. I'm more inclined to say that PMS is gender. We have a notion that women's moods are influenced by their hormones as a society. And then we confirm that, so to speak, by finding that women have negative moods just prior to uh, low estrogen. I'm not saying that there aren't some women who have PMS because, of course, whenever you do a study like the one that we did, there's always a mean and a standard deviation. And there will be people in the standard deviation. It's just that they're not the group that reaches significance. I guess what I'm saying is that in in the particular population that we studied, that is non-help-seeking women in the community, there was no correlation between any type of mood and menstrual cycle or hormones. So when you're saying that it might be a gender issue, are you saying that because of our culture's gender ideas, we perceive certain moods as being negative when, in fact, they're not? No, I'm actually saying that there's no correlation of any kind of mood. If there is no correlation, then what does gender have to do with anything? Because a lot of women think they have PMS, and, and society accepts it. So, for example, when these papers came out, one of the interviews I had, um, a radio interview, the radio interviewer said to me, what am I going to tell my wife? She loves her PMS, which suggests to me that it's a cultural phenomenon. So the idea of it is used as a an excuse or an explanation that people find satisfying, even though it doesn't. Uh, I guess it's sort of like the full moon effect, right? In that way, that oh, people. Yeah, I think it's like that. Um, my colleague Sarah Romans would say women themselves might use it to behave in certain ways oh, that okay. really that they would like to behave all month long, twelve months a year. But there's <laughs> such there's so many social constraints on women that. We know we're not supposed to complain. We're not supposed right. to be angry. We're it reminds me of people who drink a little bit and then act really drunk because they need to let loose or something like that. And the little bit of alcohol gives them an excuse to write off yeah. their behavior. <laughs> yeah. Although I would resist that analogy because it's it's saying that the 
you know, women who have, who, who complain of PMS, that that's something pathological. And I don't think it's pathological. I mean, I said to this radio host, here's what you do. You tell your wife that her feelings are so important to you that you want to know about them every day of the month. That's great advice for uh, everyone who's dating a woman or married to a woman out there. <laughs> so you, you mentioned something about the hormones, right? So what hormones are related to the menstrual cycle? A hormone called follicle-stimulating hormone that's released by the pituitary, luteinizing hormone that's released by the pituitary, estrogens, which are made in the ovaries as well as in the brain, and progesterone, which is primarily made in the ovaries. Okay, and and when you were uh, into the studies, look at all of those, and uh, when they're trying to correlate that with mood. Yes, we primarily looked at um, estrogens and progesterones because their production by the ovaries is a result of the secretion of follicle stimulating hormone and um, luteinizing hormone. Right, and to, uh, tell me if this is correct, but I've read that um, both men and women have estrogen, but uh, women have it a lot have a lot more of it. Yes, both men and women have estrogen. You you cannot get to, you can't you can't make estrogen without testosterone. Okay. It's a, it's it's called a metabolite of testosterone. Oh. So women, both men and women, also make um, testosterone. It's just in men, testosterone more testosterone stays as testosterone, and in women, more testosterone is converted oh, to estrogen. That's interesting. Uh, now, so there's clearly a relationship between sex and estrogen. Is there any relationship between gender and estrogen? I can say that in individuals who identify as transgender, prior to hormone therapy, they don't really have any differences in estrogen production or testosterone oh, production interesting. Okay. from their chromosomal compatriots. That's interesting. That suggests to me that it's that the the whatever difference is making them uh, have a perception of their own uh, gender is not caused by hormones, but could be something else, something in the brain or something like that. It's not caused by currently circulating hormones. At mm. least the literature doesn't show that. Um, it is true, however, that when people start taking hormones, hormone therapy, to um, actualize their or confirm their gender identity, then those hormones make a difference. Sure. As far as prior to taking, actually taking hormones, circulating hormones, don't differ from their chromosomal compatriots. Um, that is not to say that there isn't um, an area now that's being studied very actively around um, transgenderism that doesn't have to do with hormones, but it has to do with hormones during development and relative timing of hormones during development because hormones during development lead to something we call sexual differentiation. And there, there is one area of transgender study that is thinking about disconnection between certain a timing of, 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 of hormonal release in people who ultimately identify as transgender. But that's during really embryonic development. Okay, so tell me a little bit about estrogen and its effect on uh, children's brains over the course of development. The main developmental story about sexual differentiation is that estrogens and androgens early in development um, move the brain toward a physiology that is either more like what we associate with male behavior or more like what we associate with female behavior. Now, those behaviors in and of themselves may be gender-driven, 
And so it's difficult to dissociate that in humans from our gendered expectations of the way males and females are supposed to behave. Um, but in rodents, um, there's a very strong uh, literature showing that actually early production of testosterone, which gets converted to estrogen in the testes um, by male rodents, leads to the differentiation of both brain areas and behavior according to sexual phenotype. Right. And I know that the behaviors we associate with men and women can be can change over time and and of course with culture. Uh one example that comes to mind is that high heels used to be in Western culture used to be a male uh thing that men would wear high heels and women would wear flats and now in our culture that's that's different it makes me makes me wonder if um you know these things that we associate as masculine and feminine they're not genetic as such but we might have a genetic predisposition to learn what things are masculine or feminine in a way that we are you know perhaps uh, pre-programmed to learn uh which words go with what concepts or something like that and then uh you know as as your gender becomes evident to you then you start attaching yourself to those kind of behaviors. I'm not sure I would go along with that we're pre-programmed to do that or genetically. Those aren't the kinds of explanations that I tend to use, but I do think children really want to identify with what adults think is the best way to do things, the best way to behave, how to be a successful adult. And so they do watch and they do learn. Right, right. Um, I, I've done a, you know, the the, the rodent studies uh, on sexual differentiation, I think one of the really interesting things is that the story is most of the differentiation, the act of differentiation takes place in males, and it's almost entirely um, estrogen-driven. Hmm. So there's the production, the turning on of the production of testosterone. In fact, it's not testosterone that has the action. It's the conversion of testosterone to estrogen that has the action. And in, in all the rodent studies, if you actually, if you give estrogen to the males in a critical period for sexual differentiation, the males will develop male-like behavior and male-like uh, uh, brain, brain regions. Hmm. But, so it's not actually testosterone. So how does... Which always blows my students' mind. <laughs> <laughs> so what, tell me about um, estrogen and how it affects, uh, you know, uh, behavior and brain structure in adults. When we think about estrogen in adults, most of estrogenic effects have been studied in women. So I can't, you know, that's, and that's, that's a gendered notion, right? Because we think estrogen has to do with women, so we're going to study it in women. We don't really have a lot of adult stu uh, studies of the estrogen's effects in males. So I'll put that aside because I don't know about that. And in fact, I mostly study females anyway. Um, and, um, the effects in women seem to, um, have to do with areas of verbal learning, uh, verbal memory, um, areas of um, um, uh, something called spatial working memory, so areas of the brain that play a role in, um, like areas of the brain like the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus, they seem to be extremely sensitive to estrogenic effects. And when there's a lack of estrogen, um, the functions that these brain regions carry out uh, seem to be affected negatively. Um, I guess the one area of the brain that we, we can't, we don't study that much in, in adult, in humans because it's hard to study, but in fact, 
the hypothalamus and the area of the hypothalamus that controls the menstrual cycle is probably very intricately linked with um, amounts of estrogens um, and feedback from uh, uh, with estrogens from the um, from from the reproductive organs like the ovaries. Um, but we don't know a lot about that circuit in humans, um, whereas we know a lot about that circuit and its sexual differentiation in rodents. Um, but the areas that I'm particularly studying in women who don't make estrogen anymore because their ovaries have been removed, those areas are that seem to be most affected are areas like the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus, and those are regions that we're really focusing on. Okay, so when most people think about uh, the ovaries being removed, they think about it in terms of reproduction, that you know, you're not going to be able to right. have natural children anymore. Um, but because the ovaries also create estrogen, I guess there are other effects. Is that right? You know, I'm a brain scientist, so I'm studying the brain and the nervous system. But estrogen deprivation affects the immune system. It affects the cardiovascular system. It affects the musculoskeletal system. It, it has really wide-ranging effects across the body. So when women have their ovaries removed, do they often get um, hormone replacement? It's becoming more and more common now. For a while, they weren't because um, for two reasons. One was because there was a big study done in the United States called the Women's Health Initiative. And um, I don't even know how to put this because um, it's a problematic study. It came out with findings that hormone replacement after menopause was detrimental to cognition and detrimental to heart health. But it's a very complicated story, and unfortunately, it stopped uh, women receiving any hormone replacement, at least women who should should be receiving hormone replacement. It made us think twice about whether women should be getting hormone replacement, which might be a good thing. But as with any kind of medication, you know, it depends on the person, and uh, it depends on why they why they might need hormone replacement. So this influential study is has been called into question, or was the samples too, too small or poorly uh, done? The or? problem with the study, it was a huge study, and that was excellent. It was questioning the practice of giving every single woman hormone replacement like it was candy, which was extremely important. Hmm. You know, why everybody thought women should be receiving estrogen when there was really no good evidence for it at the time, uh, you know, was a really good question to ask. Um, however, the study, although it was it was powered extremely well, recruited women over the age of 65. It, a lot of the women in the sample um, had a very high um, BMI, um, body mass index, and um, they were all being given a particular type of estrogen therapy, which was a combination of a horse estrogen and a synthetic progesterone. And the synthetic progesterone has been, been found to be a culprit with respect to breast cancer uh, and a culprit with respect to um, cardiovascular disease and to actually uh, have negative effects on cognition. So the type of estrogen they were studying in the Women's Health Initiative was not a type that um, probably um, should be prescribed to women, although it continues to be prescribed. Okay, so not all estrogen is the same. 
Exactly. Oh, okay. Is is so it's not like dopamine or something where it's an exact chemical. It's like a family of. There. Well, first of all, there. It, it really. In natural estrogens are a family. There's there's um, 17 beta estradiol. There's estrione, and something called estriol. And in most of the animal studies in which estrogens have been beneficial, people are giving 17 beta estradiol, and it's 17 beta estradiol that the ovaries make. Okay. But the compounds that women are given for hormone therapy are there a you know there are a lot of different there are a lot of them and some of them are synthetic estrogens some of them are 17 beta estradiol but they're given with a synthetic progesterone and you know it would take a long time to discuss all the different preparations and okay. the different ways in which they're given and one of the things that people who study this carefully are learning is that it really matters what kind of estrogen you're taking what kind of progesterone you're taking and even when it's given in terms of your age and even how it's given, whether it's in a cyclic fashion or or whether it's in a constant fashion, like in a patch. It's a nuanced issue that we're just beginning to really understand. Right. Um, I mean, I will say in my own studies, um, you know, we're we're studying women who aren't on hormone replacement. We're studying women who are on hormone replacement to begin to divide the groups that are on different types of hormone replacement. Yes, it gets expensive. Right, right. Because it means you need lots of people. Right. So tell me, um, does anything happen to estrogen during menopause? The levels of production of 17-beta-estradiol fall off because the ovaries don't make as much of it and they slow down on making it. Um, the ovaries do continue to make testosterone during um, in, in menopause, but there's um, there's less conversion of it to 17 beta estradiol. And when women are in menopause, the primary source of estrogen actually turns out to be fat and the adrenals. And the type of estrogen that fat and the adrenals make is called estrone. So, why does menopause even happen? <laughs> That's a $64,000 question. I don't think anybody really knows why menopause happens. Like, do we, okay, <laughs> there are two ways to answer, two possible answers. One might be an ultimate explanation, like an evolutionary explanation for menopause. Um, but then there also might be a, a more proximal explanation of the biological antecedents and more of a mechanical description of how it happens. Do we understand the latter? Yeah, the mechanical description of 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 why it happens is that the eggs in the ovaries, um, the follicles, stop basically stop developing, um, and the follicles are an important source uh, of estrogen. So there's there's follicle atrophy, and that means that um, there isn't feedback to the brain about um, the development of the follicles, and then there's um, less production of luteinizing hormone and less of a signal to the ovaries to produce estrogen for the development of the follicles and ultimately the lining of the uh, uterus for implantation. <laughs> that's, that's great. Well, this has been interesting. Are there any takeaway messages you'd like uh, our listeners to focus on? I think it's really important to keep your ovaries if you can. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, there's certain conditions in which ovaries have to be removed. So, for example, if you have cancer, ovarian cancer, you definitely want your ovaries removed. Until until we find a better therapy for it, um, 
if you have the risk factor, uh, you carry a risk of a high risk for ovarian cancer, um, the best prophylaxis right now is ovarian removal. And those are the women that I'm studying. And I think it's an extremely difficult situation for them. But I, you know, I certainly wouldn't argue against them having their ovaries removed for prophylaxis. It's really important. Um, but it's also true that removal of the ovaries for chronic pelvic pain or um, other kinds of um, conditions that could be treated differently, I would say if you could possibly keep your ovaries due, they're important into old age, and they're certainly important when you're young. And evidence, there's, the evidence is mounting that ovarian removal before the age of natural menopause, which is around the age of 50, 51 on the average, um, it, it leads to a higher incidence of um, all kinds of uh, conditions. Um, so it's better to keep your ovaries as long as you can. Wow. So even if you, even if you know you don't want kids, you should think twice about it. Absolutely. Ovaries are not just for reproduction. Wow. Okay. That's you know, great. I mean, there might be an evolutionary explanation to that, which is that, you know, the rest of the, because of the, because of the kind of, uh, reproductive, uh, reproductive biology that we've developed evolutionarily, um, estrogens, what, what, what the ovaries do will have an effect all over the body. Um, and we really, um, can't underestimate, um, uh, the interconnection between the ovaries and every other body system. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's great. Um, I want to thank you for this great interview and, uh, also thank you for helping out with the Museum of Nature and their brain exhibit that's coming up. I'm very excited about it, and I'm really sorry I can't go to the opening. Um, <laughs> I think that's going to be great. I don't know if you're going to the opening or not. I am, I am. It's going to be a fabulous event. Yes. All right, great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. This episode of Minding the Brain was edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by CKCU, the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University. Today's episode has also been brought to you by the Canadian Museum of Nature in Ottawa in conjunction with their new exhibit, Brain, The Inside Story, which will be running until September 3rd of this year, 2018. We'd also like to thank our special guest for this episode, Dr. Jillian Einstein, and remind you that she will be giving a talk at the Canadian Museum of Nature entitled Estrogen and the Brain on Thursday, August 16th. We've included information in the show notes and on our website about how you can reserve your free spot to attend that talk. Theme music for Mining the Brain is Plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com. 